How do you 3D print habitats for Mars? What is a space architect? Can designing for extreme environments improve healthcare? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore how to design healthier lives. Today's guest is Melody Yashar. She is the Director of Building Design and Building Performance at ICON. She oversees the architectural direction of ICON's built work and the performance of building systems. She collaborates across technology and construction teams to deliver optimally performing structures enabled by 3D printing and to shift the paradigm of home building on Earth and beyond. Prior to ICON, Melody was a senior associate researcher in human factors with San Jose State University Research Foundation at NASA Ames. She's the co-founder of Space Exploration Architecture, a group that develops human supporting concepts for space exploration. She was a professor of design at Pratt Institute and the Art Center College of Design. She worked on the design schematics for a permanent lunar base for Project Olympus. I've been following Melody's work for years. I was so excited to have her on the show. We didn't drop an episode last week. I apologize for that, but I've had an insane travel schedule. Uh, Two trips to Los Angeles, New York City, D.C., Salt Lake City. I just returned from Fortune Magazine's Brainstorm Design event in Brooklyn. A great event, and I got to connect with speakers who were guests on the Design Lab podcast, which was very cool. We have a newsletter. If you haven't signed up already, you can find the link in the podcast show notes to subscribe. Every week, we're going to deliver some cool stuff to read about design and health right in your inbox. We currently have a five-star rating on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for supporting us. If you haven't done so, please go there, give us five stars, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about the show. We appreciate your support for Design Lab. Now, here's my conversation with Melody Yashar. Melody Yashar, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, Juan. And we were just talking. The last time we saw each other in person was February 2020, right before the world shut down. Yeah, so wild. We had no idea what was coming. It was so crazy. I, and we were at a conference called Construct 3D, and I was just fascinated by your career and your journey. You are described as a space architect, and I thought, this is the first space architect I met. So cool. What is a space architect? Yeah, it's... um. I'd say it's kind of a new, it's an emerging field, right? So there's a small community of space architects internationally, actually. And uh, what we do is we focus on designs for space, supporting people living and working in space, both in the near term and the long term. Outer space. Outer space. Not like metaphorical space, like outer space, like Mars. That's right. That's right. So like an orbital space and on the surface of the moon and on the surface of Mars, those tend to be the environments we focus on. But you are, even though it is a little speculative, it is very near term or you had worked on a project called Mars Dune Alpha that was commissioned by NASA and you spoke about it on your 
your TED talk, which I didn't get a chance to watch, but it'll be, it'll be dropping later this year. What is Mars Dune Alpha? Oh, this is such a great, this is such a great question. So you're absolutely right that space architecture is something that is actively being developed in the near term, short term. And even though this idea of like supporting people living on the moon and Mars feels very far-fetched, the research that's happening today is basically all simulation-based in what are called these analog environments that are intended to replicate some of the activities and some of the work and, and the living conditions that you would expect in a real Mars habitat. So Mars Dune Alpha is an analog experiment that Icon 3D printed at NASA at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And it's basically a structure that's going to house four volunteer crew members to simulate a real deal Mars mission for one whole year. They're going to be living Wait, wait, there. wait, wait, wait. They're going to live in this thing for a year? <laughs> They're going to live in this thing for an entire year. And they're not supposed to interact with anybody on the outside. It's just going to be the four of them. And on top of that, there's a lot that's going to happen to simulate what this analog is. But there's going to be a communications delay for one thing, because on Mars, there's communications latencies given like the distance from Earth. So if they send a message to mission control, they got to wait like 20 minutes for it to get there. And if they want to get a message back from mission control, there's another 20 minutes for that message to come back. So there's communications delays, limited food supply. So they're going to actually test whether they have an adequate food resource, both like in the prepackaged elements that they've got. And also they're going to experiment with an aeroponic garden to see if they can grow their own food. And then they're going to just do a bunch of other research experiments, such as you would think or you would imagine to happen on Mars. So stuff like going out and taking soil samples, things like that. They have a sandbox outside of the habitat where they're going to, this is so wild, they're going to put on a fake extravehicular suit, put VR glasses on so that they're not seeing anything to break the simulation, and then go outside into the sandbox, take some soil samples, and then come back into the analog and lock themselves back up again. So like a lot of different activities that they're going to be supporting in this experiment. I have so many questions. So <laughs> yeah. one is how big is the structure? It's not that big. So it's 1,700 square feet. And it's Wait, wait. Four people are going to be living in 1,700 square feet for a year. Four people are going to live in 1,700 square feet for a year. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, the requirements for the analog were given by NASA, and it's extremely extensive. Like the way that they sort of come up with the parameters for what this environment should be, they're finding now that they're like outfitting it and putting stuff in. Like it's way too small. It's way uh, too small. When, yeah. Are they living there now? Like when's this going to happen? It's going to start in October, which is Whoa. just so, yeah, yeah. First mission is going to start in October. The crew members, I think, are in the process of being confirmed that there was like a general application period where anybody, 
I believe they were looking for people from STEM backgrounds in particular, but there was like an open application where an application period where anybody could apply to live as a crew member for this what? experiment. Like yeah. I, I could have applied. And- yes. What? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's so cool. So this structure is 3D printed, right? Right. Why does it have to be 3D printed? So this analog and this structure could have been made a lot of different ways. NASA has other analog habitats and environments that are like made more traditionally to simulate like a pressure vessel, like a tin can kind of thing, which is more along the lines of like how we got to the moon, for example, like the Apollo lunar module. It's kind of like a tin can construction. But one of the leading ideas for how we're going to be living for the long term and really support people on the surface of the moon and Mars and in space is that we want to 3D print structures using materials that are on the planet itself, rather than launching all of these structures like tin cans or inflatables Mm. from Earth. So Wait, but what are you going to use? Like dust or dirt? Dirt. That's right. Dirt. Yeah. The idea is that you, you get to the moon, you get to Mars, you collect dirt as a kind of feedstock for 3D printing, process it if you need to, and then use it to build structures and habitat. Yeah. That's wild. And the structure that you built or are building, is that 3D printed too, the one on Earth right now? Yeah. So so what the Chapia, the, the Mars Dune Alpha is part of the NASA experiment that's called the Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog. Super long name. Now you know why we, we refer to it as Mars Dune Alpha, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's why. What they they saw an opportunity for us to demonstrate how people might live on Mars. Like, so this was kind of like an augmentation to the research. So there was a solicitation from a couple of people who had previously been working in the 3D printing space and in 3D printing generally. And uh, we were awarded the contract to take NASA's requirements and create a design and then 3D print the structure for these crew members. I love that. It must have been so difficult to build this with so many constraints. And I'm curious to know, what are some of the design principles you and your team use when creating habitats for Mars? Oh, I love this question. You're absolutely right that it's all about synthesizing those constraints, right? So we were given specific requirements for like the size of certain rooms and the location of certain elements, the number of bathrooms, um, in the general like layout of the floor plan. But when it came to design principles, we were the ones who really tried to stress like separation of private and public space Mm. so that crew members really have a sense of privacy when they need that. And they're in a more productive, like working environment when they're, you know, doing work and experiments and activities. We also really tried to push this idea of incorporating circadian lighting. So adjustable lighting so that, you know, they're not going to be seeing the sunrise or the sunset for an entire year. Um, they're not going to see the moon. They're not going to see like, there's, there's nothing they're going to see. Like this is a very, very different type of environment. So 
we were thinking to incorporate circadian lighting so that they can have uh, like they can we can basically replicate sunset sunlight as needed so that you know their bodies are not like completely off their natural rhythms and the other thing was that like just by virtue of the material that we 3d print it's already a very like acoustically sound structure so we have that working to our advantage like unlike other analog missions that maybe incorporate fiberglass or like less robust like partitions and wall separations we using 3d printing and using the mortar-based concrete that we've got we already have a very acoustically separated space Mm. so that's another thing that we really tried to to amplify apart from that you know like we tried to to design a floor plan that was uh visually interesting on the inside. So we have like variable ceiling heights throughout the analog. So it doesn't just feel like you're in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, those are some of the things that we consider. I think we can learn from designing for these extreme environments like Mars, outer space. And there must be some lessons learned from how we design for earth. <laughs> like what are some lessons that you have learned and that you could share with us. Um, Cause I, I think we learn a lot from designing for extreme environments from personally, some of my research has been done on portable ultrasound machines, like diagnostic equipment. Yeah. And that was actually started over 20 years ago because the department of defense wanted a portable ultrasound machine for the battlefield. So they uh-huh. gave a company a DARPA grant and that has like, that started a technology that totally transformed how we take care of patients in the emergency room and in critical care units that now we can have this portable ultrasound machine in our hands, but that was started by designing for extreme environments. So I imagine that there are some lessons that you can share with us of what you have learned. Oh, absolutely. And you're absolutely right that like, remote and extreme medical care is very much like a consideration that has to be made and that needs to be incorporated when we're talking about the environments that we're designing for the moon and Mars. Well, to go back to the Mars Dune Alpha project, they basically gave us like some very minimal requirements having to do with a medical bay that they wanted that included like a patient care area a pass through so that they could like take biosamples like in and out of the habitat and monitor the health of the crew members. But apart from that, nothing else. Wow. Like really like this work is still developing, figuring out how we can provide adequate medical diagnostic care treatment and, and everything following within our future habitats is like, very much an area that's actively being researched by NASA's exploration medical capability and many, many people outside. So in any event, like some of the things that we've got to be thinking about are like, what are these activities that we're going to be supporting, like portable, like taking ultrasounds as an example, or if you have to do surgery like how is that actually going to happen in space Um, yeah like what if one of the astronauts has appendicitis or what if they have a fracture what if they fall and you know 
break one of their bones. And it's like, there's so many things that can go wrong. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And we're really planning. I believe we're really planning for there to be at least one physician or flight surgeon on every crew, like as a minimum. Mm. But let's say that person is the one who's ill. Then what do you do? You know, you're working in a time delayed environment that's just so extreme and so risky, and you don't have direct feedback or direct communications in real time down to mission control or down to earth. This is particularly so for Mars. For the moon, like the time delay can be at most like it's between two and four seconds. So it's Mm. not that bad, but you don't have all of the resources that you typically do at your disposal. Right. Mm. So, I mean, it's both information, you know, that you would get from a specialist or from an expert Mm -hmm. and also like all of the resources that you would traditionally have in, um, in an earth-based kind of like care facility. Like you got to think about like bringing everything with you. And that's Mm -hmm. an extremely difficult thing to do. And I love the appreciation for prototyping and simulation, you know, what you're doing with having the four people live in your structure. You know, I think we do do so much more of those simulations or these like design exercises like to protect us here on earth. Like for mm-hmm. for example, if we had more of these simulations to protect people when there's a viral pandemic, I don't think we would have been right. in this mess. But right. we we don't have that push to run simulations for future likely events here like we should i think have the same mindset of like yeah we're planning for this mission to mars there's so many different future scenarios so many things that could go wrong and nasa has to simulate all those or predict for those and prepare our preparation for disaster for pandemics is so lacking here for at least for the u.s healthcare system i agree Absolutely. I mean, you would think that there would be protocols in place for when, or at least that we will have learned at this point after this pandemic, that we need protocols in place at the city level and nationally, like when these types of outbreaks happen. But I think you're absolutely right that there's this is highlighted a need for more preparation and thinking ahead and having more foresight to what could happen in the future. In these analog missions, like we use them as a way of acquiring data that can inform future standards because there's no standard right now for what a lunar habitat needs to be or what a Martian habitat needs to be. If you're going to be on the surface of the planet for more than like two weeks, So how do we know? We have to acquire data somehow. And it's through these analog missions and simulations that we learn. Yeah. I want to shift gears and I want to read some quotes that I found by you and some of my research (laughs) for this interview. I love this one here. You say, I had this moment of realization that everything around us has been designed or manufactured in some way. Nothing happens for no reason. Objects, furniture, electrical components, everything has a design intention. 
behind it. Where were you in your life when you had this moment of realization? I love this quote. Oh, yeah, man. Um, it was probably right around the time when I decided to transition and pursue design like as a career, really. Mm which was not something that I had planned on doing. And I also like, I was unsure. I knew that I wanted to work at the intersection of design and technology, but I didn't know how that was going to play out. And I think that still there's kind of a, there's kind of an assumption that design is exclusively a creative exercise and technology is exclusively like technical in nature. But the fact of the matters that they have so much in common and there's so much crossover. Mm. Um, I had a moment where I realized that even technology is an element of design and design is something that absolutely influences the way that technology development happens. So that, that was like my aha moment for how and, and what I wanted to contribute to moving forward, both design and technology. I love that quote because I had a similar aha moment as a physician, when I had this moment of realization of everything in medicine and healthcare has been designed or manufactured in some way that there's been some intention behind it. And I was like, oh, like, like, that's so interesting that they're intertwined. And I think people see creativity and medicine or healthcare as two polar opposite things, but they're, they're interconnected. Definitely. Definitely. And you sort of, you also have a moment where let's say, let's take architecture as an example, right? Like you sort of take it for granted that the ways that we're building structures as an example are sort of a given, right? Like most of our building materials are rectilinear. They can be flat packed and they're manufactured to be shipped and brought to a site. Right. And, uh, you see these like visions of habitats in outer space that are curvilinear and that are like uh, that that are like organic shapes and that are like mm. very different type of construction. And you start to realize like these assumptions that we have about why buildings need to be a certain way are also a, a factor of like manufacturing. It's a direct result of like his, the history of manufacturing how we create materials and mm. and where they come from and the life cycle of those materials and also the companies and the businesses that um, have been sort of like putting those and commercializing those, putting those into the market. So you start to see that everything is connected mm-hmm. and that even like building construction and architecture is not just happenstance, like there's an origin to it in addition to the design intention, right? I love your design journey. You have a very diverse background. You know, I read that you had studied like English rhetoric and art history at UC Berkeley. Then you went to industrial design school at Pasadena. Then you worked at an architecture studio in Milan and then went on to get an architecture degree at Columbia University. And I think you had another degree somewhere in that, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then like, how did you end up being this space architect like were your parents in nasa or something like that like i just don't understand how you make that leap it's i think it's fascinating yeah 
No, my parents were not involved in engineering whatsoever, but essentially it was a pretty, it happened pretty organically. And what happened is that myself and a couple of former classmates and colleagues from Columbia University decided to apply and submit a proposal to NASA's 3D printed habitat competition around like 2014-15. We didn't know what was going to emerge from this or what the results of us submitting a concept would be. And we were doing this work on nights and weekends. But to all of our surprise, like we won first prize and we beat the European Space Agency. We beat Foster and Partners, like major, Whoa. major organizations. Yeah. So it was a huge shift for all of us. We started, our project gained a lot of recognition and the small group of us incorporated as a company after that point. And we started to get phone calls to like consult and collaborate on really exciting aerospace projects. So we like were able to collaborate with NASA for a few things following that moment. And yeah, it sort of just happened. It sort of uh, evolved on its own. That is wild. Is it a big field, space architecture? I think it's largely, it's largely still like a re- applied research area. So a lot of academics are focusing on this. And then quite a few of the, right now, like the commercial providers who are setting up uh, space stations in low Earth orbit, like they have small space architecture teams and groups who are working on this very actively. Like the Orbital Reef Project with Blue Origin, it's very real. Like there are space architects working on this right now. I know that there are space architects at Northrop Grumman. Their space architects. Where else? SpaceX, I'm not so sure, even though I know that they work with industrial designers, but there are several, several aerospace giants that are looking at this as a field. And now you're at a company called Icon. Is that right? That's right. What That's is right. what does your company do and what's your role there right now? So it was really a perfect transition. Icon for me, if we're going from the space architecture work and the other space research that I was doing to what we do at ICON, which is we develop additive manufacturing technologies, large-scale construction technologies to change the future of 3D printing on Earth and in space. So it's both. I'm really I feel really lucky to not only to be contributing to terrestrial, like Earth-based normal construction. Um, and rethinking how we design and print homes and other structures right here. But in the future, thinking about what it's going to mean and how we're going to 3D print on the moon. So that's what I'm working at on what icon right now. Cool. So what does your day-to-day look like at icon? Are you like only working on projects like building for Mars? Or are you working on other stuff? Yeah, my day-to-day at ICON is that I support projects for both Earth and space. So we have a number of active projects in Texas right now. We're planning a 100-home 3D-printed community north of Austin with the home builder Lennar. It's a really exciting project that I think is going to just completely change the game of what it means to 
to design at scale and build at scale using this technology. Wow. We finished the Mars Dune Alpha project, just as, as you mentioned. And then we're also working towards developing accessible and dignified housing solutions for communities that need it most. So uh, in the past, we did a project with New Story Charity in Nakahuka, Mexico. And we also did a project with uh, Community First Village, which is a uh, housing sort of development for those who were formerly homeless. And we have projects in store that are focusing on similar initiatives. So it's a great cause. And I think it's going to um, it's going to really change the landscape of how we build at scale here on Earth. And then um, the work that we're doing for space right now, we support a research group at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center called the Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technologies Group. That sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, it's a long, fancy title describing how we're going to 3D print using the dirt that we find on the surface of the moon. So regolith on the surface of the moon, scooping it up and actually creating different types of infrastructure. So like roads, landing pads, and then eventually habitats for people. That's so cool. How big is your team that you work with on these projects? Oh, great question. So when I started at ICON, we were not more than 35 or 40 people. And that was maybe like a year and a half ago. And now we're like upwards of, of 300. It's amazing to see how quickly we've grown. The architecture and building performance team itself, which is the department that I lead, like we're largely comprised of construction architects, engineers, building science professionals, sustainability professionals, and we look at not only how the wall system is designed for each one of these projects, but also we focus on like the performance of the entire home, like the mm. home as a product and what that means when we're building at scale. That sounds like a rapid pace there. I would love to work on some of these projects. They sound so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And for those of you listening, if this sounds like something you could see yourself doing, definitely check us out. We are at iconbuild.com. We're actively hiring for multiple teams. And uh, yeah, come be a part of what uh, we're doing. That's so cool. We'll put that in the show notes. Amazing. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I'll apply. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome, Vaughn. <laughs> Here's another quote that uh, you said, which I loved. You said, we have to be thinking holistically about the environments we design and create because they're going to affect people. I love that. And I'm curious to know when you're designing and creating environments, what are some sort of the medical or health impacts do you think about? Oh, what a great question. So I think a lot of the times we don't remember how directly our interior environments like affect our cognitive abilities, our emotional kind of well-being, general psych like psychological disposition. But I mean, if anything, the pandemic should make it crystal clear to us like how directly and 
and how immediately this can have an effect on like who we are and how we behave and um, the work that we're doing and how we sort of relate to other people in our day-to-day lives. So like, I feel like that's something that we can all know to be true and how we go about our day-to-day business. But when we're talking about space or like a space flight environment, that can have pretty drastic ramifications to a mission and to the billions and billions of dollars that go into sending a few people to space. So we want to be thinking about setting up the crew for success, setting up these astronauts for success so that they are healthy and happy and working to their best ability and to achieve their highest performance. I think a lot about the environment that I work in. It's very harsh, a busy urban emergency department that, mm-hmm. and I'm always wishing that the space was designed differently, right? It, for my cognitive function, it's so loud in there. Yeah. We actually did a, a sound audit in some of our research. And at times it was consistently 70 to 80 decibels, which is so loud to, wow. you could, yeah. Right. It's like this, it's like standing on the side of a highway. That's how loud it is. And, and sometimes when I'm trying to make decisions about patient care, it's hard because there's so much background noise and there's so many alarms buzzing. So yeah. I think we forget that, yeah, that our environments can impact our cognitive function. And also it's sometimes a depressing place to work. There's like no windows, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just not designed for, I think our mental health. And I was just talking about this the other day about how there's not a really emotionally safe space in hospital environments where if something's going bad that you want to just be alone. I mean, for me, I kind of just want to be alone for a little bit private, but there's not that space for it besides the bathroom. And so I appreciate what you said earlier on when you're designing this habitat for Mars, you're thinking about how to provide some privacy for the people living there. Mm-hmm. And I think we could apply some of the same principles for healthcare workers oh, uh, because yeah. they're very harsh environments that we work in. And, and I think we forget that we're designing for the humans who live in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. In healthcare, particularly, like we often think about the patients first, right? And Mm -hmm. there's lots of evidence-based design principles that suggest that better environments actually contribute to healing, you know, more successfully. So like patients that have windows to the outside, like heal quicker and faster and are more successful in their healing processes. But we don't think about what it means to be a caretaker or to be someone working in that environment as well, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's just as relevant. It's an interesting sort of like divide in how we think about who the user is in these environments. Because if if, uh, the nurse or the physician is burned out, they're going to deliver suboptimal care. And so how do you design for all these different stakeholders of, of the environment? It's a hard design challenge, but just because it's hard, there's those constraints doesn't mean it's impossible. I mean, you're freaking designing for Mars, you know, <laughs> right? Like we could design a better hospital for the humans who are in that space. 
Oh yeah. I think it's, um, it always brings back to mind the fact that it's so important to have human-centered designers involved in these types of projects, even though they may not come around as often. Like I think that architects sometimes do and sometimes don't operate from a human-centered design principle or from a methodology that puts the human first. And it's just, it's so important to the work that we do. My final question is, how important was creativity in your path, in your journey to being a space architect? I mean, because you jump from these fields of like design, art, technology, architecture, and you're doing something that's very rigorous, uh, but there is still that art and design element to it. Yeah. I think there's a false impression of creativity as being like this magical process where you're sort of drawing an idea out of nowhere, out of a box. And I don't resonate with that at all anymore. I like really where I draw inspiration from is developing research, new ideas, working with really technical experts and those whose ideas are, have just like never been visually interpreted and using like information that we have on from like radiation experts or information that we have from geologists to use that as a jumping off point to really craft together an idea that synthesizes multiple inputs. Uh, So I don't like feel like I draw things out of nowhere or I'm like, I don't like a lightning strike doesn't happen. I don't have a lightning strike moment when it comes to creativity. I really see it as collaborative. I see it as something where we as designers are synthesizing multiple inputs and that's how um, successful projects sort of come together. I love that. I have so many more questions, but um you probably have stuff to do. (laughs) I I thank you for your time. It was so great to reconnect after two years. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show, Melody. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me, Vaughn. This is great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Melody. You can find her on Instagram. Her handle is M-E-L-O-D-I-E-Y-A-S-H-A-R. And reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Lugisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. And the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.